Welcome to the e-commerce profitability show, a podcast by Link My Books. We speak with profitable e-commerce store owners and experts to help your e-commerce business become profitable because revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. I'm your host, Dan Little. Welcome to the first ever episode of the e-commerce profitability show. Joining us today is Ben Leonard, the co-founder of Ecom Brokers, an e-commerce brokerage founded by e-commerce people to help other e-commerce people. Great slogan that. Before his current business, Ben founded Beast Gear, an e-commerce store for people who like to lift heavy weights that Ben built from the ground up before selling it for a seven mega sum just over three years after launching. He then went on to write a best-selling book about his experiences during his time called Quit Stalling and Build Your Brand. You don't need an MBA to crush it in e-commerce, which comes extremely highly recommended from people like Norm Farrar, Adam Runquist, and Ryan Daniel Moran. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So you're always interested in the environment, spent years studying for multiple degrees in the field and had a really interesting job working as a specialist for a huge oil and gas consultancy. What made you pivot into e-commerce? It sort of wasn't by choice. It was a bit of an accident. I'll answer your question, but I got to give you a bit of background first, because I actually had my idea to build my brand four years before I did. So summer 2012, I was training at CrossFit with some friends. And at the end of a training session, one of the guys is like, we beasted it today. And I thought to myself, beasted it, beast, beast gear. It's a cool name for a fitness brand. So of course I did nothing about it because I subconsciously or not thought that entrepreneurs were other people. Society teaches us and we go to school, we might go to university, get a degree, go and work in that field which is exactly what I was doing. Entrepreneurs are, you know, people who inherit businesses or people with tons of capital or inventors or people with like design degrees or very smart bosses, not me. Then the thing that made me pivot happened four years later. I got really unwell with a heart problem and I couldn't work. So I signed off work for several months. I was taking a cocktail of drugs and I, I couldn't do my training hobbies. And my girlfriend, now my wife, was studying it. So she encouraged me to do something, and that something was to work on this fitness brand idea. And my idea was to sell training gear to gyms, and it failed spectacularly. Gyms did not take me up on the idea. And whilst doing my homework on this, I realized I could sell online to other people like me. And that is where e-commerce came in. So that was early 2016. Yeah, and I think that's quite funny because the brand that I started, I don't know, you know about me as well, I'm of CX, Amazon selling myself sold some fitness equipment. One of the things that I sold was a foam roller. And I remember doing exactly the same thing in the beginning, selling them on Amazon, but also like thought, I wonder if I can take them into the gyms in the local area and get them just to have one for free and then like take some promotional leaflets so that people can buy them on Amazon. And that failed spectacularly as well. Like some of the gyms were like, oh, we don't really take equipment from people that aren't our normal suppliers. And others were just like, yeah, no bother. And then you would go back two weeks later and they were still sitting in the box behind the desk. So... I totally understand their frustrations there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They just weren't having it for whatever reason, which turned out to be a blessing because that was part of the catalyst that led me to go direct to consumer myself. And that all worked out pretty well. You had your scientific background. Did that help you to sort of build your brand in any way? Yeah, it did. So although I don't work in any way connected with my background, so my undergrad was zoology, my postgrad was ecology. Obviously, I don't work in those fields now, although I'm still passionate about environmental conservation just not professionally, I still don't regret going to university. It gave me a great background in obviously science and numbers and analysis. 
And so although I was building the plane while I flew it, riding by the seat of my pants, like so many of us are when we start an e-commerce business, the scientific background helped me because in science, we try something, we run an experiment, we test it, we see what happens, analyze those results, change something based on that and go again. And that's basically the approach that I took. And it was just one of curiosity because I hadn't set myself any like huge, scary goal or put pressure on myself. Like I have to do this so I can quit my job or I have to do this and make the business generate millions in profit. It was, I need something to do. This is a cool hobby that might earn me some extra pocket money and I'm getting quite passionate about it. Let's keep going. Yeah. And so did you use that approach across launching multiple products across multiple marketplaces when you were doing these sort of scientific tests? How did that look? Yes. And then it would come to a point where I would simply rinse and repeat what was working and sometimes scratch my head as to why something that used to work doesn't work anymore because e-commerce is a constantly evolving landscape. And also learning not to get too bogged down in the detail. I took a brand first approach. My idea was to start a fitness brand and sell it to gyms. And when that didn't work, I took it online. My idea was not to sell stuff on Amazon. Like when I started, I didn't know you could sell on Amazon. I thought that like when you bought something on Amazon, you're buying it from Jeff. And so because I was taking a brand first approach, I didn't get too bogged down in technical minutia. And I was more interested in creating quality products and a quality experience, which in my view outweighs going super deep on SEO, right? Or having your PPC campaign dialed into the nth degree. I was listening to Alex Formosi on a podcast yesterday, and he was talking about quality. And he was saying that when he owned his first gym and he was sharing his apartment, this is sort of 2012, 2013, his roommate was building a blog. And Alex said to him, so what's the trick? What hacks are you doing to rank this? And the guy was like, absolutely none. I spent two weeks creating the most absolute quality, outstanding article possible. And the quality of it will get results. It will get shared a squillion times and it will rank super highly because I've written it in language that my audience wants. And that, I guess that's a great analogy for the approach that I've taken. Quality products with a quality experience and a legit brand identity outweighs hacking your way or being like the most amazing person at listing optimization or PPC or whatever. And so I took that approach with every single product and it worked. Yeah, I agree. I did the same sort of things when I was launching my brands. I would always look at what the existing products had as negative reviews and use that to then better the products that I was selling. And I think there's not many competitors out there that are willing to spend that extra time. A lot of people are just getting stuff off Alibaba and stuff like that and just selling another version of that product. But the people who are willing to go the extra mile and actually listen to what the audience wants, as you say, they are the ones that succeed just naturally. So I couldn't agree more. So in the early stages of Beast Gear, I've got here that you've managed to rack up a million dollars in revenue with just yourself as the only employee. So talk to me about how you divided your time so that you could manage all the work whilst also having this health condition. Sure, yeah. I grew the business over three and a half years and I didn't quit my job until I was about two years in, maybe two and a bit years in when I quit my job. And part of that was just, I was quite risk averse. As entrepreneurs, we take risks. But I encourage people to take calculated risks, obviously, and not be reckless. But I've had to kind of grow into that skin. And so I could have quit my job way early, but I didn't because I was relatively risk averse as entrepreneurs go. 
So I still had my job. So managing my time was a case of grinding it out. Get up early. I didn't have kids for most of the time that I owned the first business. And now I have two and a half. The other one's coming next month. Congratulations, Wes. Thanks. It's going to be crazy. And so managing my time was get up early, work hard, go to my day job, sneak in bits when my boss isn't looking, lunch times, evenings, weekends. I'm fortunate that the timing worked quite well because my wife was studying really hard to finish her degree. And so she was spending, you know, weekends in the university library, which meant I could just sit there in front of my laptop and smash out work on my e-commerce business. But it was getting overwhelming. and I had to find ways to manage my time. And I kind of developed these four buckets of time. And they are protection, creation, relationships, and growth. And so I would always try to start my day with creation and growth tasks. So creation means creating new things. And growth means growing things that you already have. So creation might be developing new products. Growing might be finding ways to grow your existing marketing, for instance, or grow on a particular channel. And the reason I did that was to make sure that I always got stuff done that would move the needle on the business because the protection bucket was basically firefighting, right? Running around like a headless chicken, putting out fires and doing the day-to-day that kind of protects the business and keeps it running. But those tasks are never ending. So once you start those, you know you're not going to stop. So you better get some growth and creation done first. And then the relationships bucket is kind of similar to protection, but I gave it its own bucket because I'm a huge believer that your network is your net worth, which yes, is a cliche, but cliches exist because they are basically grounded in truth, right? I'm a huge fan of trying to do my bit for other people because I know it will come back and help me in the future. And also it's just the right thing to do. And just building relationships because who knows how that might help me in the future. So that could have been just replying to messages on social. I promised to do something for somebody, make an introduction. So I did, you know, that kind of thing. So those are kind of like my four buckets of time management. And that really helped me a lot. That's quite interesting, actually. So you were prioritizing the tasks that were going to move the needle, I suppose, is the way I put it. Yeah. And then over time, I was able to hand off a lot of the protection firefighting style tasks to team members. And I brought on remote freelancers in the other side of the world, mostly in the Philippines, to help me grow the business. So when you were making a million dollars in revenue, what sort of profit margins were you operating at then? How much profit were you making at that point? So by the time I sold it, we were doing $6 million a year in revenue, and we were probably doing slightly north of 15% net profit. And that's pretty normal. You know, a lot of people, you'll hear them on the podcasts and in the groups saying 20%, 30%, 40%. And that isn't necessarily true. Now, it's important to distinguish between what is your profit margin and what is actually going to be your EBITDA margin, which is likely to be a bit higher after some work has been done on that. But generally speaking, my profit margins for Beast Gear were slightly north of 15%. Had I kept that business on, yeah, I would have been able to improve that margin with economies of scale. And also just learning. There's a lot that I now know that I apply to my new businesses that I didn't know, or I was just starting to learn and hadn't quite had time to implement by the time came when I sold that. So when you're saying 15% was your net profit, overall for the business. If you're looking at your profit margin on just the product itself, before you add in any of your other business expenses. So I'm talking about just selling the product, paying Amazon their fees, and paying for the actual cost of the item. What sort of profit margins were you operating at? Yeah. So this is really important, actually, because I get a lot of people come to me, both with my my Ben hat on and my econ broker's hat on, and they're struggling for cash flow. And the reason is that in the early days when they set up their business, they were validating their products or they thought they were. And on paper, it was profitable. 
But the issue is that it's not profitable enough. So I encourage people to aim for a gross profit margin. So that's basically your revenue minus your cost of sales and your cost of sales will be made up of your landed cost of goods and then other direct costs like whatever it costs you to pick, pack and fulfill the product, for instance, and selling fees associated with wherever you're selling it, whether that's Amazon or Shopify. I encourage people to aim for a gross profit margin of 40% or more because you've then deducted more indirect costs of selling your product, such as marketing, storage, inspections, and you're going to land at your contribution margin. I would like that to be per product, at least 20%. And even then I see a lot of people running into problems with cash flow because, okay, the profit margin might be good, but the ROI isn't good enough. So in e-commerce, of course, we have a slow cash conversion cycle. By the time we've ordered a bunch of stuff, got it on a ship, it's arrived, it's checked in, it's now selling, but some of it's just sitting on shelves gathering dust. It's very slow before we get money out. And even then, some of the channels that we're using to sell will fold money back before they release it to us. So for us to then order more inventory before we stock out, we need some of that to have turned liquid. We need to get that cash out of that inventory. And in order to do that, we need an ROI on our products of at least 100%, preferably more. I would say at no lower than 70%. And if you are going to have it at that sort of level, you've got to be prepared to pump cash in. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough free cash on hand to stay in stock and either restock our existing products or hopefully grow our business and start launching more products. Yeah, it's great to have the time to be able to do these growth activities and to be able to focus on what things can I do to move the needle. But I agree that cash flow is one of the biggest problems that e-commerce sellers have. I personally had it myself. That was the one thing that was holding me back. It was, I have a list of 10 new hot products narrowed down from 100, which I know are going to be successful. I know are going to be the next blockbuster that I can get out and start selling 100 units a day, but I can't order them because if I order them, I can't pay for my order for the product that's already selling because that one is going to be ready in two weeks and I need to pay the balance. And so it is a constant balancing act of, okay, what should I prioritize in terms of time? But what should I also prioritize in terms of where does the cash go? Because there's only so much cash to go around. So I think cash flow is a big problem and it is directly linked, as you say, to higher profit margins and higher return on investment. I think maybe even more so towards return on investment, to be honest, because if you have to turn your inventory three times before you can pay for another one, then you're digging your way into a hole. Yeah, you're right. And I dedicate quite a large chunk of the book to talking about this. And there's actually an example I give in the book where potentially it can make more sense to have a lower profit margin because it's actually going to help you with your cash flow. So you might find, for instance, that you're selling your product at $20 and you sell 50 a day. But when you drop the price to $18, you're going to sell more. Maybe you're going to sell 75 a day. And actually what happens is, as a result, your absolute amount of cash that you're bringing in is higher. So you're going to get more cash out faster to be able to grow your business. So sometimes we want to sacrifice margin for cash flow. People don't think about these things and they don't test these things either. They just think, oh, it's selling at 20 bucks. Great. Well, hold on. What would happen if you dropped your price? Test it. No, I agree. I think a lot of people do stop at the gross margin level. I think they look at these calculators online, like calculate your FB fees and stuff like that. They put in the ACE and they put in their landed cost and they think, oh, flip neck, I'm going to make $5 a unit on this sell for 20. And then that is literally just the tip of the iceberg. As I say, it's all these extra costs. It's your advertising. It's paying your VA to be able to do the customer service. It's all the softwares that you're using. It's the actual cost of running the business. So everything comes into it. And in some ways, it's not their fault because they don't know. And the reason they don't know is A, they weren't taught. 
about real business at school. And B is there's so much overwhelming information out there from fake gurus. And the fake gurus don't teach this for two reasons. One, it's not sexy enough. And two, they don't even know themselves because they're fakes. They either have failed at e-commerce because they themselves didn't do this work, or they simply never owned an e-commerce business or any business, really, right? And that's really frustrating. And that's the noise that we're trying to break through. Teach this unsexy stuff, but it, unsexy stuff becomes very sexy when you have a business that's turning over millions and that you can then sell for life-changing <laughs> exactly, money. Yeah, exactly, mate. And I think that's exactly the point. It is that there are a lot of gurus out there. And if it doesn't fit on a whiteboard that they can put in a Facebook ad, then it doesn't work. And this is not stuff that can go on one single page of a whiteboard. You can't explain all of this without going into the nitty gritty. So that's basically the reason this podcast exists, I guess. So we're getting on the good stuff. (laughs) So while you were growing this business and you were effectively at the start, the only person who was doing it, I'm guessing making a bit more money in terms of profitability when it was just you. As you then grew the business, when you were trying to maintain that profit level, I know you said you took on uh, extra people in the Philippines. Was there any sort of automations you put into place? This is not a lead, by the way, for like my books. This is just any sort of processes that you put in place. Yeah, absolutely. A lot. Relatively straightforward things like Gmail filters, right? Through to more exciting things. Like I used to use a tool called Integromat, which is now rebranded as Make, which if you haven't heard of it, is like Zapier, but in my opinion, better. And the reason I think it's better is A, it's more powerful and B, it's idiot proof. Even I can use it and I can't code or anything like that. But I would use it to, going back to the Gmail thing, it would know when certain things were in Gmail, it would file the invoice in the correct place. That folder was shared with my accountancy firm. They would look after all of that for me. So that was a combination of automation and outsourcing. I would use automations for more customer facing stuff. So for instance, if you bought a product on my website and put your phone number in the checkout, Make would pull the phone number slam it in a Google Sheet, and create a web.whatsapp link for that phone number. And my team member would twice a day check the sheet, click the link, which would pull up WhatsApp in their web browser, where they were logged into my account, not my personal account. It was actually linked to my landline, but it was a personal account. It wasn't a business account. And they would drop a pre-recorded video into that WhatsApp message which I had pre-recorded myself in my home office saying, hey, thanks for your order, blah, blah, blah. And it felt very organic. It felt like I had recorded it there and then for you, although I didn't mention your name. But my team member would write your name in the message. So they dropped the video with the, hey, Dan, thanks for your order. You get the video. This is like an hour or so after you placed the order and you're absolutely blown away. Wow, this guy's paid me this personal attention. And now, of course, you have a line into WhatsApp for customer service with us. You're blown away. Now you're going to do anything we want. That's one example of an automation. And then stuff that everybody does now is standard, you know, without wishing to sound sort of arrogant about it, but it's true. I led the way with it in sort of 2016, 17, doing all this stuff with QR codes and URLs to chatbots. So Paul Harvey, who's now in the, the TikTok space, he developed the first chatbot tool for e-commerce business owners called Seller Chatbot. It doesn't exist anymore, but I was one of the beta testers there. And I, and I created a lot of the flows that he ended up then using at his tool, which were then stolen from him by many chatbots. So a lot of the e-commerce mini chat flows that you find floating around now were actually invented by me. That's really cool, actually. I love the WhatsApp one. That's such a good idea. Like, I think anything where you give an over-the-top personalized customer experience, nowadays, everything's just so lost in boring emails that stepping out from the crowd and looking a bit different, it does make customers double take and think, wow, these guys actually care. And it scales. People will say, 
that it doesn't scale, but it does scale because A, that was semi-automated and I had a team member doing the rest. And B, I'm a big fan of finding things that don't scale and then just finding a way of making scale. I think Gary Vee talks about that a fair bit. So, you know, for instance, this isn't quite automation, but it's outsourcing. What I would do is all of my products were very photogenic and still are with new brands. People post about them, but I would also encourage them to post, you know, best picture every month wins, blah, 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 right? On the inserts and packaging. So they'd post. I would find the posts every day, comment on it, like it, look at the person's profile, notice something about them. Oh, this person's from Newcastle. It's my favorite town in the UK. Great. I'll drop them a DM. Why I? (laughs) I'd actually have a real conversation with them, showing interest in them and paying them attention. And they're blown away because why do people post on social? For attention. And now the brand that they've just mentioned deadlift personal best with their new lifting straps has actually DM'd them that personal attention. They love it. And guess what? The moment I ask for a review, they're going to do it. The moment I give them a coupon code to go and buy off my website, they're going to do it. If I come back to them in three months' time and DM them about a new product launch, they're going to go buy it. And that doesn't scale when you're doing it on your own, but when you have an army of team members, well, not an army, three, (laughs) right? But it works. You just create SOPs, you create scripts and instructions, and they can go and do it. And I'm a huge fan of doing that. I agree as well. I think it's not just about building the brand of the actual brand. It's not just your company brand you're building. Like You can be a face of the company as well. And I think that's where part of your success, I guess, has come from in terms of you are the man behind Beast Gear and customers know that. And I think as soon as they know, like, and trust you, you'll be able to sell them more, as you say. Yeah. I actually, I was presenting at a few conferences last summer and I kind of gave this example where I was saying, look, if you go to some of these old products or still exist products and go to the reviews and search Ben, you'll just see dozens of reviews that mention my name. I didn't provide that service. My team did. But then I showed what happened after I sold the business. And uh, the wheels started to fall off, not because you couldn't have somebody who was the face of the brand when the business had been sold, but because the new owners didn't keep that going or find a way to smoothly transition and keep that personal touch. Have I seen rightly as well recently on LinkedIn that you're considering buying your brand back from Thrust? You are correct. Yeah. Watch this space. Remains to be seen. It depends. They may not want to divest that brand. I think it likely if they do, they'll want to divest it lumped together with other brands in that niche which is also fine. You know, I've been putting in the work behind the scenes to find the capital and the partners to make this happen. It can happen if they want it to happen. They might not want to sell it. That'd be interesting though. Another industry first, led by Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be great fun, right? My vision for it is to do the whole thing in public, you know, YouTube channel, podcast. I think there'd be huge appetite for the service providers to get involved, demonstrate how using their service, their tool, their software, whatever it is, makes a tangible difference. I think it would be a fun story as well. Uh, there's something quite romantic about it, I think. So we'll see. You know, I'm a huge fan of radical transparency. In the not too distant future, I'll be going way more public with my existing brands. I get frustrated by the fake gurus out there who are not public with their brands, probably because they don't even have any. And the reason I haven't gone public quite yet with them is they're still quite new and therefore vulnerable. So if somebody listens to this podcast and doesn't like me, they can go leave 10 negative reviews and I'm kind of in a pickle. So I need to wait until the moat is wide enough that I'll be all right. Yeah. No, I totally understand. So getting a little bit back on topic here, as the company grew, what were the areas of the business you looked to bolster through recruitment and how did you find the right people for those roles? Well, there's kind of two ways of looking at this. There's recruiting individuals and then there's recruiting agencies. So the first thing I got off my plate was accounting and shout out to Mint Accounting here. I wandered into their office 
in probably late 2016 with my dad. And I was really their first real e-commerce client and a bit of a guinea pig. And now they're one of the leading e-commerce accountancy firms and I'm still with them. And full disclosure, their director, Allison, played a key role in the exit of Beastgear. So she and I co-founded Ecom Brokers. So to some extent, I sort of have skin in the game there in, in a way. So yeah, got accounting off my plate, which is smart because I, I'm not an accountant, obviously. But what really helped with that, of course, was then I had smart people that knew what they were doing who could then tell me, this is what's going on with your numbers. And this is how this should affect the rest of your business strategy. You can or you can't afford to launch this, right? I believe in taking advice from experts, basically. You know, just again, on the agency or third party organization side, three PLs, of course, that was really important. But then when it came to individuals, I'm a huge fan of the Philippines because there's a lot of talent there who are loyal, hardworking, well-qualified, phenomenal English. Some of the people that I still work with now, I've worked with since 2017. And initially, my way of finding talent there was simply to go on Upwork, find them on Upwork, and then get them off of Upwork. These days, I go through a bit more of a, what I would say is a real recruitment process. If I want someone full-time, I'll, I'll go use a recruiter, I tend to work with Multiply Me, no affiliation, just love them. And if I want to hire someone part-time, even if they're going to end up being full-time, I have a semi-automated system that my team uses. So this was developed using Make. I didn't develop it. It was developed for me. And basically, so when my head of brand wanted to hire an assistant, she put together the job description. This system automated the posting of the job description on the appropriate places like onlinejobs.ph and completely automated the compiling of all of the applications and management of the test tasks. She then just had to review the test tasks and whittle it down until we got to a few candidates. I jumped on a couple of interviews. Done. We hired her assistant and we hired my video editor like that. And if people want to see the quality of the video editing, go to my Instagram and you'll see. So anyway, that's a long way of saying hire people in the Philippines. <laughs> that's funny, actually, because that's one of the things that we are looking into more now is outsourcing members of the team to the Philippines in general, actually. So yeah, I think you can get some really quality people there, actually. Yeah, you certainly can. And I'd love to visit. Yeah, me too, actually. So you said in an interview with Forbes that making any e-commerce store a success depends on both strong brand and branding and marketing. Beast Gear has an extremely clear and well-defined identity. How did you laser in on that branding and how did you make sure it connected with people you wanted to do business with? Yeah, when I started, it just kind of made sense to me because I was my customer. And I encourage people to build brands that they're passionate about where they are the customer. So I basically built a brand that reflected who I was, which was average Joe who's into fitness gear, and who I aspired to be, which was a slightly fitter average Joe who's into fitness gear, right? And I think that's what's really important. We need to understand it's about people first. It's not, right, what am I going to sell? And then find a way to sell it to people. It's who are my people? What are their problems? And how can I develop products that are positioned as solutions to those problems? And then it's about developing a brand identity around that that resonates with your people. Because although people buy from brands, they connect with people. And that's why, you know, I'm a huge fan of making the founder the face of the brand. But also it's about doing the work to understand your customer avatar. And that phrase is thrown around a lot, you know, your avatar. And when people think about that, they often immediately think demographics, your age, education level, location, that kind of matters. But I think what matters more are 
the values of the person as it relates to your niche, their challenges and pain points as it relates to your niche. I would define a challenge as being like the problem with the status quo and the pain point is the problem that they're having as a result of not having your product, right? And it's showing that, that you help them overcome that. And I think that's critically important. You know, you can get really deep on this if you want. And I do this in the book. I talk about something that I call brand DNA, which is really made up of your brand purpose, you know, why your brand exists, what is the whole point of it, your brand vision, what a world in which your brand is successful looks like, of where you're going, basically. Your mission, which is basically how you're going to do it, how you're going to get there. And all of that is really important. And if people think that it's not, there'll be people listening who have a pretty successful business, but it's not really represented by a legit brand. Well, just ask yourself, what would happen if you look around the room you're in now or just think about your life and your favorite brands? What would happen if you stripped away everything about those brands that is branding and you were just left with business? Would they be as successful as they are now? Would you even have a relationship with those brands? Highly unlikely. So if you start treating your business like a real brand that looks and feels and behaves like a real consumer goods brand, it will make a tangible difference to your top and bottom line. No doubt about it. Even if like you're not particularly interested in brand. I realize now that we haven't even defined what brand and branding is. So we should probably do that. There's lots of different definitions and people will argue over which is right. And I think basically everyone's roughly getting at the same thing. So I like to say that a brand is a group of products or services that solve problems for a particular group of people. Branding is how you make people feel that way or how you make them feel about your brand. And marketing is how you tell them. So in theory, you could have fantastic branding on paper, but your marketing's rubbish. It might as well not exist, right? It's kind of like if a tree falls over in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, they didn't make a sound. So if you don't have good marketing, it doesn't matter how good your branding is because no one's going to know about it. That is a good way of putting it, actually. I think that a lot of the brands that I buy from, like consumer-wise, if you stripped it all away and just thought of them as a business, yeah, I'm not sure I would do business with them. I think that for me, it almost feels like the brands that I resonate well with are talking my language, if that makes sense. It's almost like an extended friendship. It's like, they are part of my circle. You are spot on. So before we started recording, you mentioned Elgato, which is the brand of gear for creators. Lights, cameras, microphones, and you mentioned they just brought out a new teleprompter. They also have the Stream Deck. that You can find generic versions of a lot of what they do on Amazon. Like I've got a, one of their tools right now that takes the footage from my DSLR camera and plugs it into my computer and makes it work. You can buy generic versions of those on Amazon. But what those generic businesses, I'm not going to say brands, don't do, is provide me with helpful, compelling, useful, engaging content in the places where I want it, YouTube, social media, my inbox, to make me have a relationship with them, to make me know, like, and trust them, to make me consider that they are a subject matter authority that knows what they're doing, to make me know that if I have a problem with my product, they're going to have my back. So if you strip all that away, then so many of the brands that we currently love, we wouldn't have a relationship with them. And therefore, they wouldn't be doing anywhere near as well as they are now or may not even exist. So those of you listening who just have a business with no brand, pivot and build it into a real brand. And that is partly what I talk about in the book. The book is for people who have an idea and want to build a brand, but it's also for people who have a business and want to make it into a brand. This is a really key point. So I think it's important that we sort of like restructure this. So what we're seeing here is that, first of all, 
look at your audience. Who do you want to market to? Know everything about them. Know where they hang out. Know what their pain points are. Know what their challenges are. Know what they're interested in. Get a full picture of them. I used to do this and I used to even give them a name. I still remember from the beginning of Link My Books, we had Andrew the accountant and all the facts about Andrew and actually found a picture of someone that I thought would look a bit like Andrew. I had this picture of him. It was off the stock marketplace or whatever and put that on the document as well. And I knew that was Andrew the accountant. And so everything we did, which was marketing towards Andrew the accountant was all around his profile. So I think that's the first step, isn't it? It's making sure that you know your audience completely. And then if we take this Elgato as an example, because I think it's a really good example, actually, I think there's two things that they do well, right, in my opinion, and based on what you've said as well. One is that targeting all their branding towards exactly those type of content creators, people who are making stuff on the internet, who are then putting out videos and stuff like that. And they are building all of their branding around that to appeal to that group of people. I've got a microphone arm from them. They're not making generic microphone arms suitable for everyone. They're making them specifically thought like this is going to be low hanging so it can come under the computer and stuff like that. And they've got all the stuff that's targeted specifically towards creators. And then I think the other thing that they do quite well, which I haven't talked about yet, is it becomes like a family of products. So I've now got an Elgato ring light. I've got key lights. I've got the wave mic arm. I've got the stream deck as you've got as well. And I'm now looking at the prompter and it's because I'm now in that, as I said, extended friendship of the brand. I feel like I want to do business with them. I want to buy more from them. So when they bring out new products, like you said before, if they ping me an email with this new prompter thing and I start to see it all over YouTube, I recognize that it's their content because I'm used to their type of stuff and I, I want it basically. You're right. And you know what? It could be that after this recording, you go to buy the teleprompter and it's out of stock. And you could go and get one from somebody else that does the job just as well. But you'll wait because you want everything Elgato. And this podcast was not brought to you by <laughs> Elgato, by the way. And partly because you just want it to be cohesive. And partly because you have that relationship with them and you trust them. And that's how it was for me with Beast Gear. That's how it is now with new brands that I'm building. I have customers contacting us. They want to know when the next thing's coming out or whatever it might be. And that's how it's going to be with all my brands in the future. And that's how I teach people to do it as well. The days of just slamming stuff on the internet and selling it are over. And some people who got in in those days are still making it work and that's fine, but they will struggle to sell that business and tell that compelling story to a buyer that A, they should buy it at all and B, they should pay a premium multiple for it and that it's scalable and it has a future yeah, because that's ultimately what the buyer is thinking, that I can buy this asset and I can make it bigger and then potentially sell it myself later on or sell it back to Ben. <laughs> yeah, and that it's got sustainability. It's got those raving fans who know, like, and trust the business, will buy anything you launch, will fiercely defend your brand. They don't want to buy a business and then have to go and do the work to plug all that in. They want to buy what you've built and keep it going. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about branding now, about how that can vastly improve your profitability. Do you think there's anything else that e-commerce brands can overlook in terms of increasing profitability? Getting your costs down. The number of people that I speak with who are struggling with profitability and ROI and cash flow and the things that we mentioned, and I say to them, so, you know, your cost per unit is this, 
you're paying $3.50 for 10,000 units. What were you paying for 1,000 units at $3.50? And I'm like, holy smokes, we've got some negotiation to do here. So many people have literally never had a conversation with their manufacturer about negotiating on price. That it baffles me. Or they haven't even attempted to find alternative manufacturing sources, whether that's in China or Vietnam or Taiwan or India or Pakistan or Mexico or Colombia or wherever it might be. So that's really important. Getting your costs down, avoiding shiny object syndrome, stripping out the stuff that you don't need. So many software tools that people are using that they don't need. I think a lot of people find some of these tools quite useful at the beginning to help them validate a few assumptions. But after that, you don't need so many of those tools in my opinion. Not so much profitability per se, but cash flow is an inventory management and dripping your inventory through and building the relationship with your supplier so that they'll even let you store some there. You've got a constant flow of it coming through, whether that's into 3PLs or directly into Amazon fulfillment centers. That's really important. Combined with, again, not strictly speaking profitability, but still really important payment terms. So many people have been doing business with their manufacturer for years and they're still paying 30 down and 70% when the goods are ready. And they could be paying for a large, large portion of that 60 or even 90 or in some extreme cases, 120 days after the goods have shipped or landed, which would mean that they're literally selling the products before they've even paid for them, which puts them in a great position for their network and capital and is extremely tempting for a buyer because they're not going to have to plow a ton of working capital into there. Clever. Okay, so that's how to increase profitability and things that people typically overlook. So now moving up to the sort of final questions here. So looking at the market now, what advice would you give to people who are looking to launch an e-commerce brand in 2024? Have enough money and be realistic about how much money you need. At least 10 grand, especially considering what niche you're going into and the platforms on which you're going to launch it. Amazon is huge. I think everybody should be there, but I don't necessarily think everybody needs to launch on Amazon. I don't believe in the drop shipping method for long term, but I do see the benefits for testing the waters without having to spend a load of money on inventory. You can play around with meta ads or TikTok ads and drop ship to test something and then move that to an in-stock model through a Shopify site. And that can work for a lot of people because on Amazon, especially if you're moving into a market that is fairly saturated, not that I think people shouldn't be scared off by quote unquote saturated markets, because it's all about how you position your business and your brand and your product. And you can still win in those markets. I'm doing it now. It is going to be expensive when you start because ultimately you're going to have to hammer pay-per-click. Whereas if you can buy relatively cheap traffic on social and drive it to your site with a compelling creative in your ad, which you can do, well, when they get there, the only people on that digital shelf are you. You're not sitting there against a bunch of competitors like you do on Amazon. So yeah, have enough capital. Be realistic about whether you're going to need to keep pumping money in. And the easy way to do that is make sure you validated your economics appropriately and you understand what's the ROI looking like on this product and are you going to have to throw more cash at it and if you do, where are you going to get that money? There are loans available. You know, in the UK, for instance, we could get loans from startup loans and it's like 6%, which is actually a pretty good interest rate. Go in on something that you're passionate about and that you understand and that you know 
there is a demand for and that you can genuinely solve a problem and improve people's lives as it relates to your niche. If you want to start a scuba diving accessories brand, make sure you understand scuba diving. You understand the problems that scuba divers have, how much they'd be willing to pay for your product, and whether you can position your product as better than what's already out there, and whether you can make your brand more compelling than what's already out there. And if you can, go for it. Yeah. I think that a lot of what you said there resonates with how I've done over the years as well. I think that making sure that you are being able to add value, being able to genuinely understand the people's problems and position a product that does solve them and solves a problem. I think that's first and foremost. I also agree with you need to have 10 grand to start, but I would say it's more 10 grand you need to start if you're going to start your own brand. I think that there's multiple ways to generate that. I know personally when I started, I started on a credit card and I bought some products in Boots and in Argos and in Ikea and just flipped them on Amazon and continued to do that until eventually got to the point where my car was basically full every single day of stuff from Ikea. And it was getting to the point where I thought, right, this isn't scalable. Had some cash now from doing that. How can I make this expand and be scalable? And now it's time for private label. And so I think that dipping your toe in the water as either dropshipping, I'm not too keen on that either, but as sort of online or retail arbitrage first, building up an understanding of how the ecosystem works and then moving to private label. I think that's a pretty viable way to do it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it is. I think another option that people should consider exploring is going and working for somebody in this space. You know, there are people now running e-commerce brands from spare rooms that are generating eight and nine figures. And those people don't want to outsource everything to the Philippines, right? You can get a job in this space. You might have to do it on the side of your existing day job, but that's a fantastic way to learn. I highly recommend that. And of course, you should read my book. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the roadmap. So last few questions then. Let's say you go back in time. What would you change about how you launched Beast Gear? Apart from launching earlier, launching 2016, which I'd done at least a year before, I probably would have gone bigger, harder, faster and been a little bit more risk averse. My first order was 500 skipping ropes. Two grand of my money, 500 pounds of my dad's money. I wish I'd taken out a loan and ordered way more and then taken out other sources of capital to really ramp the thing up faster. Okay, so who in the world of e-commerce would you most like to take to lunch? Oh, apart from you. Well, e-commerce is such a vast space. Can I cheat and say a couple? Say a few. Yeah, yeah, go on then. Okay, all right. Ezra Firestone, Shopify guy, very smart, has grown not just his Boom by Cindy Joseph, which is a makeup brand, but also his services and software, which is phenomenal. Would love to just download his brain. Then I'll pick one from the quote-unquote Amazon FBA space. Probably Mike Beckham from Simple Modern. He's really active on Twitter. Simple Modern is a brand of household products, primarily in the kitchen space. They do like tumblers and stuff. To the same meal, I would invite Aaron Cordovez from Zule Kitchen. Well, it's a kitchen brand, but again, absolutely crushing it on Amazon. Would love to just, you know, download his brain. What a little cocktail party that would be. The last question then, Ben. So what one thing can e-commerce professionals do right now to boost their profitability? Raise your prices. Legit advice. Case in point, we in one of my brands have just raised our price on our main product from 60 bucks to 70 bucks. And we will not be dropping it. We have seen 
sales stay the same or improve. Obviously, it's more profitable. It improves our cash flow position. It improves the perception of the brand in terms of the positioning. And it's not as scary as you think. And guess what? If it doesn't work, you can put the price back down again. 100% agree. And I tested this as well myself like a long time ago. And I think it very much depends on, as you were saying before, the customer persona. So the people that you are targeting, if you are targeting people who have a bit more disposable income, then they want to spend more. Like, I don't know about you, but when I'm looking through like Amazon, if I'm looking for a gift, I normally look for a specific price range. So like anything below that price rate, I'm just discounting because I'm like, no, I don't want a cheap thing for this person that I'm buying for. I want it to be a nice quality thing. And so you directly associate price with quality. And so if you are sitting just below that 25 or 35 or 45 bracket, and that person is looking for stuff that's 45 or 50 plus, you've just excluded yourself from that conversation. And it also means that you can then afford to spend more on further improving the product as well. So yeah, I totally agree with increasing prices. A lot of the competition that we had on Amazon when we were selling, the ones who did really well were higher prices than us. They were lower. So there was always the ones that were like bottom of the barrel selling tons and tons, but just at really low prices and you knew they were making no margins. But then the ones who like truly did well and expanded out all the time with new products, they definitely had higher prices. I would always have this anxious feeling before I raise a price and I'd raise a price and I'd have a pleasant surprise. I don't really worry about it now. If we need to raise a price, we raise a price and it's an experiment. And if it turns out that that didn't work, well, we'll put it back down to get it. Who knows? Maybe we'll then test dropping the price and seeing what that does. But you always got to make sure that the unit economics are going to stack up and think about how it not only does it look to your customer, but how does it look to somebody who might want to buy your business? Yeah, 100%. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Ben. So where can people get in touch with you? And most importantly, where can they buy your book? Amazon. It's Quit Stalling and Build Your Brand. Just search Quit Stalling and Build Your Brand, Ben Leonard. If you go to quitstallingbook.com slash resources, you can get the free resources to go with the book. I'm on all social media channels. My handle is Ben Leonard Pro. I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to talk about planning your exit, go to ecombrokers.co.uk. If you want to join the waiting list for my brand building course, that's at product-empire.com. Very cool. Thank you very much, Ben. It was a pleasure. And I will look forward to speaking to you in the near future. And we'll see what other gems we can have. Cheers, mate. See you later. Bye. The e-commerce profitability show is brought to you by Link My Books. To find out more about Link My Books and how to accurately automate your e-commerce bookkeeping to ensure profitable growth, visit linkmybooks.com and then make sure to search for e-commerce profitability in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Link My Books, thanks for listening.